Throughout human history, societies have grappled with fundamental questions of how to organize themselves. Government does nothing as well or as economically as the private sector of the economy. Tech companies are actually taking over the world, and they're doing it with our government's help. But there also seems to be a growing awareness that they have become so big that they have too much power now. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and is gravely to be regarded. There's a hidden goal driving the direction of all of the technology we make. For well, we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that combines military, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific, technological elite. People all over this country are wondering whether or not this great country is evolving into an oligarchic society. This alternative vision argues that ordinary men and women are too small-minded to govern their own affairs, that order and progress can only come when individuals surrender their rights to an all-powerful sovereignty. Now we can see a new world coming into view, a world in which there is a very real prospect of a new world order, and today that new world is struggling to be born, the dream of a new world order. Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Foundations. My name is Joshua and today's episode will pick up on some similar themes that I covered in the previous two when I talked about predictions that I had and things that were going on in the world, current events, coronavirus, all that kind of stuff. And so I wanted to break down some of that into some topical sections, basically all the hot topics that are going on, or at least a few of them that I see being an issue coming up and things to look out for, kind of an update on how things are going in these areas, these types of things. So the topics that I came up with were biosecurity, the vaccine, chips, medical pre-crime, contact tracing, and immunity passports. So these are all the topics that I thought of as things that were very important to the times that are coming. And so with that, let's just dive right into the biosecurity state that we are finding ourselves in. So I had mentioned this in the COVID series that I did a while ago in the previous season, where I compared COVID-19 to 9-11. And I had mentioned how after 9-11, if you saw someone, if let's say you're an American and you're at the airport and you see someone that's Middle Eastern of some kind, then automatically, oftentimes, the first thing that would pop into somebody's head is terrorist. And it's not necessarily that they automatically thought that that person was a terrorist. It's just that seeing someone who appears to be Muslim made someone else think of terrorism because it's kind of just ingrained because 9-11 just happened. And that's just the first thing that comes to mind. And so with that, I was foreseeing possibly a similar thing with maybe Asians with COVID-19, because when everything first started and I did that trilogy series on COVID-19, they were really hyping up the fact that it came from China, it came from Wuhan, you know, it's the, the dirty Chinese that kind of thing, and that that might be a negative impact, some racial tensions there where someone sees an Asian and then they just automatically think, oh, you know, dirty disease carriers. And, you know, that would obviously be a very bad thing and not something that anyone should think, just like no one should automatically think a Muslim is a terrorist. But that's just kind of the zeitgeist of what gets created. And that's what I was worried of. But I actually think it's turned out to be 
less severe than that, but more detrimental, in my opinion. So it seems like we are now in this biosecurity state where you have uh, Trump has even called it the invisible enemy. And it's this idea of having an unseen enemy. You can't see it. You can't see the coronavirus, obviously. And sometimes it can affect somebody and you don't even see any symptoms of it. And so it's this unseen, invisible enemy that you can't identify. You never know who's going to have it. And so because of that, anyone, anyone in the world, anyone you come across, anyone you walk by, anyone in your family, anyone could be the enemy, so to say. Anyone could be someone that you would have to watch out for, that you would have to be careful around, that could be carrying the virus, you know, that could be a carrier. And so it basically turns anybody and everyone into a potential the bad guy or dangerous person or whatever you want to say, someone associated with this new invisible enemy. Just like previously, you might have seen someone from the Middle East and thought terrorism. Now it's pretty much you see anybody and you think disease and coronavirus. And so someone sneezes or someone coughs, then that's kind of the first thing that enters your mind. It's anybody that has the sniffles or is extra messy or whatever the case may be. And that's not a good thing to view everybody with suspicion and automatically have negative thoughts about anyone you walk by or see out and about or touch in some way or touch something that they touched. And so it creates this atmosphere of fear and it really backs up this idea of being in a biosecurity state. It's not a physical security state. We're not worried about terrorism. We're not as worried about physical crime and getting mugged in the street. We're worried about catching this invisible thing that you can never see and you never know who has it and you never know where it is and you never know really how bad it is or how to treat it or anything about it. It's, you know, this big mystery, but, you know, it's this worldwide pandemic that's ruining everything and changing the world. And yeah, it becomes this thing that has a a huge paradigm shift associated with it where we are now entering into this concept of biosecurity. It's about protecting your body and your health and controlling other people's bodies and other people's health. And since this is such a big deal and we are all affected and anyone could be affected, then it puts us into this state where the security of our bodies, our biological security becomes paramount. And that then reinforces all of these other things that I will be bringing up, all these other topics. And that's kind of what we have been brought into, and I foresee that being something that will continue for a good while to come. Now, the next thing would basically be the solution. So when you go back to the Hegelian dialectic I've brought up many times, you've got the problem being coronavirus, you have the reaction being the creation of this biosecurity paradigm, and you have the solution being the vaccine. And so that's one of the applications of that type of framework there. And with the vaccine, it is a little interesting. I would say it's very sketchy and I would not touch it with a 10-foot pole. One of the issues that I have is basically just how it's set up. We've got this Operation Warp Speed where they are being fast-tracked through everything. The safety protocols are not being followed the way that they typically are with a drug like this or a vaccine like this. And so that's a bit of a problem to have something rush through that might potentially be very dangerous. But in addition to that, just the framework of how it's funded and how liability is handled, you've got 
the U.S. government in particular is basically giving millions of dollars to big pharmaceutical companies to create a vaccine. And whether they produce it or not, they get these millions of dollars. And if they are able to produce it, then they are guaranteed some government contracts for scaling up and producing a lot more. And so that becomes an issue as well. So they're highly motivated, they're financially motivated, and there's basically no strings attached. And so that's a bit of an issue. But hey, as long as you hold them accountable, then I guess you could make that work. But that's one of the other problems is that liability has been removed from the pharmaceutical companies in regards to any negative side effects of the vaccine. And so they can get all this money, they can rush through a vaccine and skip a lot of the safety protocols for it, then they can get it to market and get paid for it and get guaranteed contracts for it. And then if something goes wrong, they're not liable at all. And hey, they just got the money and they're happy and they move on. And so that's not really a good thing. They might get a black eye PR wise, but nothing too major. There's plenty of excuses that this was such a big deal and we really had to get it through. And hey, it passed all the checks. You know, the FDA approved it or whatever the case may be. And so that's a bit of an issue. Some other issues might include mutations, where if you have a mutation of the coronavirus and a new strain that comes out, will the vaccine be able to handle that or have any effect on it whatsoever? Or will it be like the flu, where you just create a new vaccine every year and you guess on the strain and half the time you get it right, probably less than half, and yeah, you never know how that goes. And uh, flu vaccines are another thing that uh, brings up a few interesting subjects here. So with the flu vaccine, studies have shown shown that when you get the vaccine for a certain strain of the flu, it can help prevent infection from that strain of the flu. However, it also has some other effects that might not be as positive. Number one is that the flu vaccine increases susceptibility to other viruses, and this would be specifically non-influenza viruses. To get some examples, I actually pulled up a study here so I can just read from some of the examples. It is something that I quote... Let's see here. Will increase the risk of illness from non-influenza virus infections, such as rhinoviruses, coronaviruses, RS viruses para-influenza viruses, adenoviruses, HMP viruses, and enteroviruses. And so the one thing that should probably stand out to you is coronaviruses. And that's not such a good thing. So that's one of the problems is that getting a flu vaccine it appears, makes someone more susceptible to this uh, coronavirus pandemic and catching the coronavirus. And so although there haven't been any studies that I know of that have isolated COVID-19 specifically, it has been shown and proven that the flu vaccine does increase your chances of catching coronaviruses in general. And I saw somewhere else, it's not in this one, at least that I know of, I saw somewhere that it was respiratory viruses as well was included in one of the lists. And it's possible that one of those names that I cannot identify and don't know what they are uh, would include respiratory viruses. I'm not sure. But since COVID is a mix of coronavirus and SARS, which is a respiratory virus, um, that might also not be such a good sign. In addition to that, you have something called viral interference. And so on one hand, it can be a positive thing where if you get a vaccine from one thing or you come in contact with one virus that 
not only will your body build up immunities to that one virus, but it can also build up immunities for you and help your body fight off other kind of non-related viruses that you might come in contact with in addition to the one you're vaccinated for or the one that you came in contact with. So that's a positive thing. You have immunities for the one virus, but you end up getting immunities for others. I don't know the reasons for this. It gets fairly complicated, and I wasn't willing or interested in digging into all the details of the scientific research there. But that is a thing. And so on one hand, that's positive. The negative aspect, especially related to this, is that when they've done studies on influenza in particular, the problem is that some people have have some natural immunities. They have these phenomena known as imprinting. And again, I am not a doctor. I am not a medical expert. So I'm just relaying this to the best of my understanding, at least. And I will provide sources for this at the end of this episode. They are on the website, by the way. And so you can do your own research if you want to understand better. But the idea of imprinting is that someone, for example, can catch the flu or some influenza strain at childhood and have some long-lasting imprint of immunity from that strain of influenza, but also from multiple other viruses that can last for long periods of time after their childhood infection into adulthood. And so this is a very good thing. The problem, though, is that apparently getting the flu vaccine can basically undo that and cancel out that effect of imprinting. And so even though you might have all these immunities built up, and hey, you never know, maybe coronavirus might be included in that. That would be very nice. But if you get the vaccine, then that probably gets canceled out. And so that's a bit of an issue. Now, all of this is related to the flu vaccine. So to tie this into the potential vaccine for the coronavirus, number one, you do have an issue from the flu vaccine. And so that's another thing. Flu vaccines are pretty much getting mandated everywhere right now. And that's probably not a very positive thing. But in addition to that, with the COVID vaccine, you could potentially have a lot of similar things going on. The best comparison that I've been able to find is the influenza vaccines that we have and how we treat influenza with SARS. Every time they tried coming up with the vaccine, it only increased the severity of symptoms and they weren't ever able to actually make an effective vaccine for that. And my understanding is that it's very difficult for coronaviruses in general. And so there are some problems there. Now, that would then bring me to the next aspect, and that would be how some of these leading candidates for the vaccine work. They are mRNA vaccines, especially the leading candidate from Moderna, but some of the other companies are using that same mRNA technique. And apparently it's a new one that has never been tried before. And you're getting injected with RNA, with actual RNA into your system. And so instead of being injected with a basically a dead version of the virus, which is a common way of doing a vaccine, and then your body comes in contact with that and builds up an immunity to it. Instead of doing that, since that doesn't seem to work for this, what they're doing is they're basically changing the way your body fights off this virus. And so it's something that 
isn't necessarily a genetic modification to you, the host, uh, but apparently in most of the side effects for these types of vaccines, it is listed as a potential side effects to, I don't know how it's worded, something like uh, genetic alterations or something like that. And so that's something that uh, also might not seem too good. If you do not want to be the genetically modified organism, this type of vaccine might not be one that you would be very interested in. And the other issue is similar to the flu vaccine and influenza vaccines. There probably are many other side effects. So if it's changing the way your body fights off this virus, could it also be changing the way your body might fight off another one in such a way that it makes that other virus much, much, much worse? And especially when we get into this biosecurity state and biowarfare becomes a more prominent thing, could you then design a virus that takes advantage of this change that's been made in the population? I am sure that you could. And there are other issues that may come up with that, the viral interference issue and things like this. These are things to be aware of and something that might not be such a good thing. Now, there is one thing that these pharmaceutical companies will do in order to make sure that you are safe and the vaccine is safe. And this is called pharmacovigilance. And the idea here is that they will monitor everyone who has had the vaccine for up to two years after they have had the vaccine to make sure that there are no unintended consequences and negative effects that they had not realized. Now, on one hand, this may seem like a positive thing, and in a way, it is. It's good to keep track, and if there are issues, they can identify them early on. But on the other hand, it kind of makes you wonder how many effects they are expecting to have if they are going to monitor you for two years after you have the vaccine. That uh, raises some questions. Now, on that note, I mentioned that they're skipping some of the normal safety tests and things like that. Some of the leading candidates that I looked up, like the one from Pfizer and the one from Johnson & Johnson and some of the other vaccines, when you look at their uh, safety studies and their trials, it gets a little sketchy where usually you have a sample size when they're doing the safety studies, whenever they get to human trials, at least, which is another thing that got completely rushed through. And we basically just jump straight to human trials. And then they're currently, as I'm recording this, talking about jumping straight to children, even when they haven't finished the adult trials. And children are the least susceptible and the least... Uh, they have the least amount of risk towards this virus, but they're already trying to be rushed into these vaccine trials that are kind of sketchy and haven't really even been tried out on adults yet. And yeah, it, it brings up some questions. But in addition to that, the test that they're doing is not with thousands of people like they usually do with vaccines over the course of a few years. This is something they're doing with a few hundred people. One of them, I think, was like 140 people or something like that. Very small sample sizes here. And they are testing these in real time and not doing any uh, more drawn out tests where they can double check the effects after a few years and do the full safety trial like they usually do. Uh, hence the idea of the pharmacovigilance where they monitor you after two years because you are now the scientific study. They 
didn't do that in the safety trials, and now you become that safety trial. The other issue that I had is how they rate their success. Apparently, the success of the vaccine is basically something that decreases the symptoms of the virus. And that's, as far as I could tell, like really the only thing you needed to do in order to say you have an effective vaccine. But as far as at least I understand it, that's not what a vaccine is. And so that might be a little interesting if all you're doing is lowering the symptoms that someone is having. Now, that is a good thing by itself, but that is definitely not what most people would think of as an effective vaccine. And that could probably lead to some bigger issues if people feel like they're safe and that they're vaccinated, they won't catch it. And then it spreads a lot more because people aren't being careful anymore, don't care anymore. And then they're surprised when it spreads around, but they don't realize it's spreading around as much because the symptoms aren't nearly as bad. And yeah, there could be some issues there. I don't know. Again, on one hand, it's still a good thing if you lower the symptoms. That's a positive thing. And that would be an effective treatment of some kind. But that's just not what most people would think of as an effective vaccine in particular. But going back to the pharmacovigilance here, that is something that they are planning on doing where a lot of states and a lot of workplaces and a lot of modes of transportation, a lot of different entities are going to be making this mandatory. A local college that is in my area or a college system for the whole state is already mandated both the flu shot and the COVID vaccine. And the COVID vaccine hasn't even come out yet. They don't even know which one they're going to pick, if any, if not all of them. They have no idea. But it's already mandatory. And the same has been said of airlines and some other companies where they have said that that is something that is being planned, at least. There are some states that are already talking about making it mandatory. I do not believe that it will be mandatory in the U.S., mainly because I don't think they would have to and it would look really bad, bad PR. I think what they'll do is basically just say, well, you have to have the vaccine to go to a concert. Ticketmaster has already talked about this. Or you have to have the vaccine if you want to get on a plane and go straight through security instead of having to get your temperature and get a COVID test before and after and quarantine and do all this whole rigmarole. Um, If you have the vaccine, you're clear to just go. And maybe some companies will say, well, you have to have a vaccine in order to come back into the workplace or to enter the building. You have to either have a negative test or a vaccine or whatever the case may be. But I see this being more of a convenience issue where it will be a major pain if you can't just flax your vaccine card and instead you have to go through all of these different steps and all these precautions and all these issues. People look at you funny, all these different things. And so more than likely, it will not mandate that people get the vaccine, but it will highly incentivize people to go ahead and get the vaccine and it will feel fairly mandatory in order to participate in normal, everyday, smooth, convenient life. And so that's kind of how I see it playing out. But going back to the pharmacovigilance, that kind of ties into another topic of contact tracing, where it's all about the safety of the individuals and of society, mostly society, because we are basically giving up the freedoms and privacy of the individual in order to make sure that society stays safe. It's the idea of the social body and that 
the good of the most is more important than the good of the individual. And so how can you do the most good for the greatest number instead of how can you protect individual liberties for the individual person? These are two you know, totally different ways of thinking, individualism versus collectivism. And this is highly skewed towards the side of collectivism. Now, I don't think I really need to explain all the creepy dystopian aspects of being tracked and traced everywhere you go that is just uh, kind of out there. And I've read about it in many different sci-fi books, but never really thought that I would be seeing that rolled out in 2020 or 2021. But it already is the case. There are plenty of places where restaurants are taking down your name and number and information, scanning your driver's license. And that way they have a record of every single person that came into the restaurant and ate with a timestamp of when you came in and when you left. And that way, if anybody caught it, caught the virus, that is, they could go back and do contact tracing for everyone else that was in there and where they were seated and all this kind of stuff. And they have apps on your phone in multiple countries that is mandatory, such as China, as one example. But there are other countries that um, have made this strongly encouraged, at least. I don't know if anybody else has mandated it, but there are other governments that have strongly encouraged their citizens to do this. And then when you have this app, it can do the contact tracing, track your location. It can tell when you've come in contact with somebody or been around somebody that tested positive, And then it can automatically recommend that you go ahead and quarantine yourself or get tested and all this kind of stuff. But it's all, yeah, in my mind, that is very dystopian. And the issue is how this could be used for other applications and in other more negative ways. That is pretty much a guarantee that when they start with the contact tracing and get that up and going, get that institutionalized, that will then be applied to just about anything. Someone who has a dissenting view, maybe, or someone that is a potential criminal or somebody that might have done something else that the state didn't agree with. Now, there are positive aspects to this where you can catch actual criminals and actual terrorists and all these kinds of things. But uh, again, going back to the 9-11 example, when you look at the Patriot Act and they were basically subpoenaed under the Freedom of Information Act and they were required to turn over all of the arrests and all of the terrorist attacks that they had stopped specifically because of the Patriot Act and all the information they were gathering and sifting through and all that data, they only came up with one instance where a guy, I think, sent like $4,000 or some small amount to somewhere in Africa. I think it was Somalia. I'm not positive. And there might have been a terrorist cell there that that they could have been supporting terrorism in Africa. And that was the one time that the Patriot Act had actually stopped anything terrorism related. And that was after years, I think well over a decade of uh, gathering and collecting and sifting through everybody's messages, emails, phone calls, text messages, just all these kinds of things, uh, you know, total breach of privacy and freedom and absolutely nothing to show for it. But I guarantee you 100% that they use that data and information for much more than that one potential funding of possibly a terrorist cell. And so that is a bit of an issue there. And we have the parallel now where it's even more tracking and tracing and surveilling. You have the cameras everywhere. Facial recognition is a big deal. If you use facial recognition to unlock your phone or you have a bunch of pictures on Facebook, even if you don't have Facebook, somebody else that you know has Facebook and they have uploaded some pictures that have you in them. They have tagged your name. And so therefore you are easily accessed within the system of, hey, this is this person. This is what their facial scan 
scan would look like, and they can automatically find you on any security camera anywhere you go if you have some uh, tracing of some kind uploaded into that software where you could have a company like Palantir, for example, that does this kind of thing and other similar companies where they specialize in things like contact tracing and surveillance. And this is something that you could have a set of software or maybe a specific company that did this. And so if a lot of the major chains in the US, for example, uh, stores and restaurants and stuff used a similar company or the same software, then and all of that data would interlink and you would have access to, you know, maybe security cameras from Olive Garden, as well as from Walmart, as well as from Target, as well as from Bed Bath & Beyond, all these places, gas stations, who knows what. And, you know, you can obviously see the surveillance grid being built out there even to a much greater extent than already happens. I think that does then tie us directly into pre-crime. Now, this is something that President Donald Trump of the United States had talked about previously. I think it was a few months ago, six months ago at the most. Um, they had a program that they were trying to roll out under the FBI where they would have some sort of pre pre-crime program. They wanted to be able to stop uh, terrorists and mass shooters and people that were prone to these things. They might have some psychological issues. And Trump wanted to be sure that we could stop these people before they perpetrate some kind of act that is going to hurt others and hurt themselves. And so in order to do this, we can monitor their social media history and their posts and their calls and their messages and what other people have said about them and any other red flags that have come up. We can gather all this stuff together, run it through an algorithm, and then we can basically be able to tell who is going to do something before they even do it. Now, this is creepy enough in the physical realm, but now this is being applied to the biosecurity paradigm with the medical pre-crime. And so between sensors, like let's say an Apple Watch or Fitbit or something like that, as well as the contact tracing that I mentioned earlier, as well as uh, quarantine and other regulations that might be in place and might be monitored through the surveillance grid, things like this, it can all be fed into a data collection system of some kind, ran through an algorithm and spit out, hey, these people are probably infected. These people are possibly infected. These people are definitely super spreaders, you know, quarantine them, isolate them, find out everybody they've been around, focus on these people. And you could have something like that where it's not necessarily that the person even is infected by anything, but according to the algorithm and maybe statistically, their chances of being in that category are fairly high and therefore they will go ahead and get isolated and quarantined because that is what is recommended by the algorithm due to the statistical probability based on the data that was input and how the algorithm was written and how the code was designed and all of these kinds of things, which again, just like the contact tracing, hopefully you can see how this could be used for uh, nefarious purposes and other things that you would probably not want if you are a lover of freedom and privacy and things like that. Now, all of these things then tie into the other topics that I had mentioned at the front of this episode, both chips and immunity passports. Basically, both of these tie into the idea of having a digital ID where you're digitizing 
the person, the person's identity, proof of the person's identity, but not only that, but information about that person that can be verified that it really is that person because it's their identity as well. And so this has been digitized. This will enable people to basically plug into the system in some way, very conveniently, where you could easily just scan something and prove that you are who you say you are. And you can show all of these different bits of information such as maybe your vaccine records, which is one that would be very uh, appropriate here, as well as maybe scan something and go ahead and pay because it's linked to your bank account. Just like your phones are, it's very similar to that, but you would have maybe some sort of digital ID. Some people go as far as to say the chip under the skin and mark of the beast and all that kind of stuff. And that's possible, of course, it exists right now. The technology is there and people have done that themselves voluntarily. But In addition to that, it's something that could just be a convenience thing where maybe you have an app on your phone that is encrypted to a degree that most people feel safe about it. And people are safe uploading all of their information on their phones anyway, their bank account information, their credit card information, all of their personal data, uh, private pictures of themselves that they should probably never have on anything connected to the internet and all kinds of stuff like that. People already trust the... Um, they trust the technology for some reason. Who knows what? If you ask them, they probably would say that they don't actually trust it. Just like if you asked them if they trust politicians, they would say no. And then you say, do we need a government? They say, well, of course. Are you crazy? And same thing with lots of other things. So that's just where we are. And with that, people are much more prone to choose something and to accept something that is very convenient. So like I mentioned earlier with vaccines, it's not necessarily that having this type of digital ID might be mandatory, although I would more lean towards it probably will be. You have something called the Real ID program that's going on in the United States. It started a long time ago. I was listening to a podcast episode. It was Peace Revolution, maybe, or maybe Corbett Report, one of the two, from 2008, and he brought up this topic of the real ID system that it passed. It was a bill, and it passed um, overwhelmingly with only one dissenting vote, but they delayed the implementation of it for like 10 years or something like that. Well, this is from 2008, so that was more than 10 years ago, and I do know, it was in the news recently, that this past year, in my state at least, if you did not have this new real ID, then you were weren't allowed to board a plane. You'd have to use another form of ID, like a passport or something. So in a way, technically, it is not mandatory because you don't have to do that. But unless you want to use another form of ID, you do if you want to get on a plane. And there are, I'm sure, other things that are like that, not just flying on a plane. But there are other times when you will need that form of identity. So even though it might not be mandatory, it will be mandatory for some things. And basically, if you want to be involved with polite society, you're going to have to do this. And so with that, if you have a digital ID, though, it's very convenient where if you're going to, let's say, a concert that Ticketmaster is holding and you have to have either a a vaccine record or a negative COVID test, that information could be stored uh, with your digital ID. And you go to the front, you're in a line, you basically just scan your phone on this reader and it proves who you are, that you've already paid for your ticket. You probably have a digital version stored on there. It'll show that you have your vaccine or you've had a negative COVID test in the past 24 hours or whatever the criteria are. And you basically just walk right on through. And all of that was done in a split second by the computers and the algorithms and the exchange of data and information there. And it was super convenient, super easy. 
also super scary because, again, what are the other effects of having all of this information at the fingertips of these various corporations and governments and people? And how else will that be used? It's not could that be used? It is will that be used? And it will probably not be to fight on the side of freedom and liberty. And so that is something that you also might want to be aware of. I will now start to wrap up this episode here and let you know, number one, that I am close to done, I think, with the doom and gloom and the negative aspects of current events and COVID and all this crazy stuff that seems like we are living in the middle of Brave New World or 1984 or probably a prequel to those maybe. But um, the next episode I'm at least planning right now uh, that could change because I'm kind of recording these last minute often. I don't have a backlog and who knows what I'll do. And this is kind of a random series I'm doing here in between seasons. But the plan right now is that I will do an episode on manufacturing consent. That was one that was requested by Rachel on Twitter. And so I will plan on doing that and talk about lots of different things about basically building narratives, convincing people to go along with them, how you uh, implement social engineering and all these kinds of things and how that's happened and how that is happening and these kinds of issues as well. And so that will probably be next episode. And then I'll get into what I think are more fun things like uh, podcast recommendations that I would have and maybe slightly reviews. I'll tell you a little bit about them at least. And an episode on investing and cryptocurrencies, homesteading, permaculture, these types of things. Those are things that I would consider a little more fun topics. And those are things that also fit in very well with, well, how do you apply this to your everyday life? Uh, The idea of maybe applied agorism. We have covered agorism. That is something very important. But how do you live that out? How do you apply that to your life? And things like homesteading and uh, learning about permaculture and being self-sufficient obviously are part of that. But how do you invest? How do you save your money and make more money? And how do you educate yourself? All of these are aspects of agorism and of applying that to your life and preparing yourself for who knows what is coming. And then probably at the beginning of the year, roughly, I will finally start the next season and we should, at least that's the plan, start season three. And so that's where we are going, at least as of my plans right now. Now, I also mentioned sources. I created a new page on the website. It When you do the drop-down menu on the left, there will be, I think the very top one says COVID-19. And I apologize for the formatting. Uh, Podbean is not really the greatest for a website. Eventually, hopefully, I will create a new website that's just probably like our foundation's podcast.com or just something basic like that where I can actually control it and format it the way I want. Podbean has some pre-made formats that I have to work in. I don't have as much uh, ability to mess with that. So the formatting is kind of funky. Some of it's aligned in the center. Some of it's the left. Some of the coloring, it goes by like the standard color scheme that I've chosen. And for whatever reason, that doesn't implement very well at sometimes. But Uh, beyond that disclaimer, the information is very good. And so what I've done is I've taken a lot of the research that I've done related to COVID-19. I broke it apart by topic. I have one on masks, one on lockdowns, one with a lot of different charts, and a summary at the end. 
And so I have multiple sources for each one. I do pull quotes where I've pulled out certain um, sentences or statements or whole paragraphs that I think are very applicable from that source. And I'll put that up. And then the source is linked right after that. Some of these are scientific studies. A lot of them are. Others are maybe statements by groups of doctors, such as the Barrington Declaration, things like that. And so there should be some really good sources there. There are some from OSHA and the CDC, the World Health Organization, you know, some very reputable, well-known sources there. And that should be a good source of information for you to look into if you are curious or want to know more about these things or want to be able to back up some of the claims that you might know and you might have heard, but you can't necessarily point to, well, here is the scientific study that says cloth masks increase the risk of infection for influenza type viruses. Well, now you can actually cite the specific study. You can copy the link and send it to somebody if that's something that you would want to do. Now, I will warn you that, um, as I mentioned in previous episodes, we are living in an age that is not very friendly to arguments of facts and logic. And so that probably will not work very well if you send those types of links to people. That will probably just um, inflame things and it probably won't work. But you're welcome to try if you want. More than that, I think it would be good to educate yourself and make sure that what you think and what you are saying actually is backed up by the real research. And so that is there. A lot of the charts are really interesting. Uh, That's one thing that uh, stood out to me. I guess maybe it's just a visual thing that's easier to see on the chart, kind of how these things are playing out. But uh, I would highly recommend that you go visit that. Visit the page on the website. It's ourfoundations.podbean.com. The link is in the show notes. I also sent out one or two uh, messages on Twitter about that. And so check it out. In addition to the website, please visit the Twitter page. Uh, I don't know how you word that. Please visit our Twitter account, whatever. Get on Twitter if you are on it and find me at foundationspc. And that is the handle that I have on there. I will send out tweets about episode announcements and random memes and some quotes every now and then and just random stuff that's relevant to the things I am discussing. And so that's something that you should be following as well, as well as if you have any requests or any feedback of any kind, feel free to send it to me on Twitter. That is a method that I can use. Email, though, would probably be the preferred one and the easiest one if you're going to say anything of substance. And that would be our foundations at protonmail.com. The link also is in the show notes like everything else. And so that is a way to contact me if you have any requests, if you have any issues. Uh, Patrons, there are a few patrons that still have not claimed your rewards. If you are a patron and you sign up at really any level, I think there's maybe two levels or three levels. I don't really remember, to be honest, but it's broken up by tiers. I think it's two and both have a few perks that you get with that, um, such as requesting an episode topic or a question um, or getting merchandise, like a free shirt, something like that. Um, All of these things are things I have given access to everybody at one point in time or another. But if you're a patron, you're pretty much guaranteed access to these things when you want it. And there are a few patrons that haven't claimed those. So if you would like those, send me an email and let me know and I can get those to you. Other than that, I would just like to say thank you to all of the Patreon supporters, the patrons out there that are financially supporting the podcast. I greatly appreciate that. I was talking with my wife the other day and told her that, you know, I actually have all of my hosting fees covered. I have 
an Audible subscription cover that I use for all my research and stuff. I have been able to buy a few books recently that were paid for. I was reimbursed for by the money I'm getting from the patrons. And so although I'm not getting paid necessarily to do the podcast, at least all of my research and all of the uh, bills that I have associated with this, with the hosting and things like that, I am able to cover. And probably fairly soon, if I get just a few more, I should be able to do my own website as well. Either that or I've got some other things I would like to do. And so that's something that I greatly appreciate. Thank you very much for your support. And thank you listeners as well, just in general, for listening and for being a part of this podcast and supporting me in that way. I greatly appreciate all of your support of all kinds. I'm out of here. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundation's podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.